Well, I begin this morning with a word, and the word is hate. Well, that's not a very nice word to start off your sermon with. The word hate. It's a word that is used today probably more than any time in history. And generally speaking, it's used recklessly. For example, in the liberal culture that you and I happen to live in today, if someone identifies themselves as a conservative, they are more times than not called what? Haters. Is it because they live their lives hating everyone? No, not at all. It's actually nothing more than having a different worldview than someone who happens to be liberal. Even worse than that is when a true Christian actually holds to biblical standards and, more than that, actually lives out those principles in their everyday lives. They are instantly branded a hater with no eye witness, no evidence required. A few years ago, there was a group, there still is a group, called the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who back in the civil rights movement years ago, they actually did a very good job back in the day. But today, they seem to do more of a work of labeling groups as hate groups. Now, they certainly have done some correctly. You will find some white supremacist groups like the KKK and and the Aryan Nation. They're labeled as a hate group. You have black supremacist groups like the Nation of Islam, the new Black Panthers and others, they're labeled as hate groups. The problem is right beside those names, you have groups like the Family Research Council. You will have the American Family Association, Traditional Values Coalition, and many others who are labeled as hate groups. Former news anchor Shepard Smith, while he was on the air doing the news, he called Christians who opposed gay marriage, you guessed it, haters. Haters. One of the most loved restaurants in this country, y'all know who it is, God's Chicken, known as Chick-fil-A. It has, since 2012, been called vile names and even protested. Why? Because the owner had the audacity to say that he stands for traditional or biblical marriage. Now, of course, I can keep going all day with all these kinds of reports, but I'm sure that everybody here gets the picture. So what is with this rhetoric? What is with the abhorrence of Christianity? Is this new? Is this something that we're just seeing more in the 21st century? Well, believe it or not, Christian haters have been around a long time. Matter of fact, you can go all the way back to the time of Christ 2,000 years ago. But why is it seemingly so prevalent in our society today? The words are used all the time. Haters. Whatever you say, what you believe in, your politics, you're a hater is what you are. Why have Christians being called vile names become so mainstream that it's not quite just an opinion anymore amongst your friends, but it's in newspaper articles, blogs, major news networks, books are written on this. And it depends where you live. Sometimes you'll even see a billboard. The bottom line is that 
The truth of Christianity, which you and I know is found in the Word of God, has never changed. The moral standards of God have always been the same, and therefore it's not really Christians who have come up with something to, to literally bother the world. It's the world that is separating themselves from the people and the doctrines that have come from the Lord himself. Now the question is, should you and I be surprised? Should we be troubled that the world hates our guts? Or should we, like some, do everything we, uh, everything we can to try and make sure that the world likes us? Well, the answer is no to both those questions. But I want you to turn this morning to John chapter 15, the Gospel of John chapter 15. In this, this text here, Jesus is preparing his apostles for his coming death, of course, his resurrection and ultimate ascension when he leaves this world. And in doing so, Jesus shares the words from chapter 15, verse 18, which says, listen, guys, he says, if the world hates you, well, then keep in mind that it hated me first. Now, before Jesus actually spoke these words, he had just informed these men that they were not just going to fade away. Just because Jesus is leaving this world, they're not just going to fade away and go back to whatever it is that they're doing. Matter of fact, he said previously in verse 16 that he had chose them. He says, I have appointed you to go and to bear fruit. Your job isn't over just because I'm leaving. Go and bear fruit. It was important to these disciples, and by extension, I believe it's important for you and me today, to understand that we're, we are not put where we are today just to be on cruise control, just waiting for our death one day till it's all over with. Just like these apostles in the first century, we are called by Almighty God to do something for the work of his kingdom. God has never created the Christian life to be a spectator sport, ever. He's saying here, while you are here in this world, proclaim the good news about me, and he says, bear fruit. Now, whether that is the fruit of the salvation of a soul, or maybe it's, it's involved in the changing of a life at somebody who's already saved, okay? But he says, this is your calling. Wherever you work, wherever you happen to maybe go to school or, or wherever you're at, or the people that you see, he's basically saying, have some kind of impact in their life, Okay? And then he finished that up in verse 17 with repeating what he actually said back in verse 12, and that was love each other, or as I would say, don't forget, love each other. The work of the ministry is not going to happen unless you love one another. There actually would not be a ministry if there's ongoing division and pride amongst yourselves, he's saying. 
How can we attract others to salvation? How can we attract others to the church if we can't even get along with each other, if we ourselves do not love one another? The future work of those disciples, just like the church today, depends on the attitude that we have towards one another. Now, all of that being said, to set us up this morning, he also wanted to let these apostles know that what he has called them to do was not going to be an easy road. Okay? It wasn't a day of joy. Go out, have fun with yourself. It's not going to be an easy road. Even when they were unified in their ministry and they did love and support one another, the world was not all of a sudden going to start taking pleasure in them. And so with that in mind, let's now read the entire text this morning. It's going to be verses 18 through 22. And let's see what kind of reaction awaits the faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I do not come and if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Now, backing up a little bit, because these apostles, just like Jesus, were not going to be on this earth forever, I believe, in addition to them, these verses will also apply to you and me, his church, because I'm sure you realize the apostles are gone, Christ has gone to heaven, so now it is we, it is you and me, who are continuing the ministry that he began 2,000 years years ago. But what Jesus is doing in our text right now is he is preparing the apostles for their up-and-coming reception. Or maybe I should rephrase that and say their up-and-coming rejection. He just told them in verse 16 that he appointed them to go out into the world and to bear fruit. But it's important that they are prepared for this. Because it's very likely they are going to see resistance. And so with no beating around the bush whatsoever, Jesus simply says in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Now bear in mind, folks, uh, the words that we use today, uh, agreeing to disagree, uh, uh, not appreciating somebody, uh, I'm not fond of somebody, or I dislike them. Those are one thing. Hating is another. Okay? Jesus is not talking here about simple opposition where people disagree. 
The word hate means to reject. It means to abhor. It is a deep-seated hostility. If any of you here ever pay attention to the news, when something that we would stand for comes up on the news, you'll see it instantaneously. You won't see somebody go, I just tend to disagree with these folks who hold to this. They will mock you in a heartbeat, and they will call you names in a heartbeat. Now, even though the word if, you'll see that here in our verse, the word if is used, notice it says if the world hates you. Even though it is used, we know from history that the word if became a reality. We know that. The unbelieving world did hate the apostles. And they hated them, Jesus says, because they hated me first. Okay? Simply stated, if the world hated Jesus, if the world hated his message, if they hated his theology, if they hated his view on sin and righteousness, they were obviously going to hate his followers because they held to the very same views. And so even though Jesus, just like his followers, were in this world, and they were in this world with a mindset of love, they, like us, we desire the salvation of mankind. The world is going to stand in powerful opposition. Now, it's important to state here that the word hated is in what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense. The perfect tense implies an action that took place in the past that is still currently taking place in the present Okay? Something that happened way back then, but it still is happening right now. Okay? What that's saying here is that the world's hatred is literally a fixed attitude towards Christ. An attitude that carries over from him to his apostles to the rest of the disciples all the way till you and me today. Started with Christ and it doesn't stop. They still hate you and me. And remember, folks, the, the hatred of Christ started pretty early on, didn't it? Matter of fact, it started when he was a child. He was hated by none other than King Herod. Remember, King Herod desired to kill him. And then, of course, all throughout Jesus' ministry, when the Jewish leaders also wanted to kill him. And as you know, they, they pursued that until it came to fruition. And now you and I, as we sit here today, 2,000 years later, if one of us, say, goes on the news, and all we do is simply quote Scripture, well, you know the Bible says blank. Well, you know what the Scripture teaches, blank. If that's all we do, we don't give any opinions whatsoever, you will watch the hatred come alive. Watch the mocking come alive. We can be the nicest, most loving person on the planet, but because you and I side with Jesus Christ on certain issues, we're called hate mongers, religious zealots, bigots, racists, and of course now we're just anti-everything. doesn't matter what it is. But you know why that is? Because whether it was in the time of Christ or whether it is today, 
the world loves their sin. And it's when we stand opposed to it, it is we who become the bad guys. The world loves their sin so much they would just rather mock the person who doesn't necessarily agree with them. All of those people, those organizations that I read you earlier, none of those people have ever said or done any hateful thing. They just simply stand for the moral values that they find in God's word. You guys know who Truett Cathy is? He was the founder, of course, of Chick-fil-A. He never said, I listened to the man's interview, he never said a disparaging word against anybody. He simply supports God's definition of marriage. And the hatred for him and the hatred for his, co- his company has not stopped. It's been 11 years. It has not stopped. And so on one side of the coin, they hate you because you stand with Christ. On the other side, they hate you because you don't stand with them. Look at verse 19. He says, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so to boil this verse down to its basic meaning, because we are not part of their group, because we are not part of their gang, because we don't watch their cable news network, because we have a different letter next to your political affiliation, whatever it may be, they hate us. I don't stand with you on this or that issue. I hate you. I can't stand you. You are what's wrong with everything. Is what they say. Folks, the bottom line is that when Jesus Christ walked this earth, he set the standard for righteousness. You and I don't. We fail. But Jesus himself set the standard for righteousness. Because of him, they knew what God's standards were. Jesus lived them out. See? Because of him, the standard was set for what is sinful and for what is holy. Arrogance versus humility. Selflessness versus selfishness. And of course, we can go on and on and on. There there were really only two basic views, as you probably know right? There's God's view, and then there are those who stand opposed to God's view. If we choose God's, then we're haters. We're haters. The basic premise is that Jesus Christ drew a line in the sand that man didn't like. You know why? Because it exposed their sin and their immorality. The standards of God and the standards of men are now recognized as being diametrically opposed to one another. So why change your own beliefs? Why change your own sinful conduct when it's just as easy to hate the ones who oppose it? I like what I'm doing. I like the sin that I live in. I like the immorality. It's a free country. I should be able to do anything I want. It's none of your business. Why have any standard whatsoever? Why 
sear the conscience, as Romans talks about, when I'll just turn on you and say, you're just a bunch of haters. This reminds me of a friend I had back in California. He was just a hard worker. He worked hard. He took his job seriously. He did it to the best of his ability. But as you can probably understand, that doesn't do very well when the other workers are slackers. They couldn't stand him because his work ethic exposed their lack of one. It's no different if you have a standard and you, you have a standard of living and you hold to a Christian worldview and you walk as worthy of Christ, they're going to hate you because it does nothing but reveal who they are and how they live. Matter of fact, First Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is, I, I could read this no matter how many times that it always amazes me. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, he says, For you have spent enough time in the past. This is who you used to be. He says, You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery and lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Listen to this. They, the world, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and therefore they heap abuse on you. Because you've made a decision not to live your life in debauchery and lust and orgies and carousing, because you don't want to do that, they heap abuse on you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? No, I don't want to go out and get drunk and commit adultery. No, I don't want to talk like a sailor no, I don't want to go watch these filthy movies. Whatever it may be, they heap abuse on you. Isn't that just a trip? Right here in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Everyone who does evil hates the light. And they will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Nobody invites the pastor to their party, <laughs> okay? My neighbors don't do that either. They knocked on my door one day and said, hi, and we're so-and-so, we live over here, and blah, 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 blah. And what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Boy, we need to get back to church. That was their first statement. Well, we've lived there 17 years now. We've never been once invited over there. But, uh, but usually there's a reason for that. They're going to assume that I'm a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person, but I, I do live my life to a certain way, and they don't. The last thing they want is to have me over there not doing what they're doing. See, they don't want that. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Come on, Peter, I know you're there. Just hold that thought. I'm going to get ahead of myself. In John chapter 7, verse 7, I'm going to give you one more. Jesus told his brothers, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Once again, it's the hatred 
of somebody because it's very, their very lives will testify what they do. Jesus stood against everything the world was for, and as you know, they were going to kill him for it. And now what he's doing, obviously, here in our text is he's preparing the disciples by saying, they're going to be coming for you too, which is telling the same thing to you and me today. They're going to be coming for you too, okay? What Jesus is ultimately doing is preparing them and us to expect rejection. Rejection in the worst kind of ways, outright hate. If you know anything that's going on in the world today, if you pay attention to anything, as I said earlier, just plain and simple, they hate our guts. Now, as we move into verse 20, like I said, I got ahead of myself there a little bit. As I move into verse 20, Jesus stays on the same subject matter and he says this. He says, remember the words that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So what happened was in chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus, if you remember, was washing the disciples' feet. He was washing the feet of the 12 apostles. And he told them at that time, no servant is greater than his master. Okay? So in that context, he was talking about humility as a servant. Okay? You see, to refuse to follow Jesus' example of humble service was to pridefully elevate yourself above him. It's as if to say, I'm not doing that. I'm too good for that. Right? No true servant dares to regard, folks, any task as beneath him if his master has performed it. Therefore, Jesus was basically saying, I'm the example here, Jesus was saying. Now, here in our text, Jesus is using the exact same words. It still means the same thing. It's still an example. It's just in a different context. Here, Christ's point was to the disciples that they should expect to follow him you're still going to follow Jesus as an example, but you're going to follow him in his suffering. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And here is 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 23. He says, slaves, Peter says, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. He says, to this you were called. What is this? He just got through saying it. You, suffering, right? You're suffering, but you haven't done anything wrong. To this you were called. Why? What does he say? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, it says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's another one of those sections of Scripture that can be, be taken out of context. Christ set us an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, okay, I'm good with that. But if you quote this verse, he's talking about suffering. See? Peter here, no different than Jesus, were in preparation mode. They want us to realize that no one should expect to receive any better treatment than he did. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, Disciples are not greater than their teacher. Slaves are not greater than their master. Disciples, he says, are to be like their teacher. And slaves are to be like their master. And listen, Jesus says, And since I, the master of the household, have been called Beelzebub, right? The prince of demons, the members of my household will be called even worse names. You know, I mentioned earlier, you think of Christians today, you think of them in China, you think of them in Africa, North Korea, all the persecution that's around. It, this isn't name-calling over there. Persecution has reached a fever pitch. Like I said, the, I've actually read the stories where they will come in in a place like Nigeria, light your village on fire because they're basically huts. When people run out of them, they just light you up and kill you, gun you down. Because you're a Christian. That's it. Because you're a Christian. Oh, you were over here preaching the Bible? We're going to put you in prison. Or that in North Korea, which has happened two weeks ago. Oh, you have a Bible laying on your coffee table? You're going to be in prison for life. Life. Much more than name-calling, but some serious stuff, some serious hatred of Christ and those who follow him. Now, obviously, if we're here in the United States, uh, you know, we're nowhere near what's going on overseas. But trust me, folks, give it time. I can't even tell you how far uh, this country has progressed in the last 10, 20 years as far as the quote-unquote persecution of believers. If you identify yourself with Christ, you will do so, and I quote, in the fellowship of his suffering. Now to bring in some positive news, this is going to be very short, but I'm going to bring in some positive news. Amongst all this hatred, Jesus says there at the end of verse 20, if they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. No different was the case with Jesus. The majority, as you know, from Jesus as well as his apostles, uh, rejected. They rejected what they had to say. Rejected their teaching and they persecuted them. But there will always be that small number, just like today, who would and do want to embrace the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have ever experienced uh, someone coming to faith in Christ, you know that all of that rejection was worth it. Just to, it's hard to believe that you had just some small little part in somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody 
being born again because you shared the gospel and you let the Lord do the work from there. But it's great news to know that there are still those. They may be a few, but who will listen and obey the truth. Well, at this point in our text, Jesus once again reminds them that this hatred is going on is not a personal vendetta from the world to them. It's simply a carryover from him. Verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. There are two reasons, he says here, for this persistent attitude that the world offers. The first is ignorance. They do not know the one who sent me, obviously speaking of God the Father. The world has no proper concept, no understanding of Almighty God. This is why you hear the stuff that I tell you once in a while. Well, the God that I worship believes this, and they just throw out some gobbledygook. As that result, number two, the world cannot properly assess the one in whom God sent, which he says here, of course, is Jesus Christ. If you're allowing yourself to be driven by the world and therefore have no true understanding of who God is, they're not going to give Jesus, or, or, or even his followers for that matter, any time of the day. Matter of fact, they will probably give you the proverbial middle finger. You represent God, you represent Christ, you follow them. Well, you're number one with me is kind of what you're going to get. The world is completely ignorant of God the Father. They create him out to be who they want him to be. Okay? They don't want to believe what the Bible has to say about him, so they simply just make up their own representation. Because the God of the Bible condemns how they live. It condemns their sin. It condemns their lifestyle and their rejection. I don't want to hear that. And as you can imagine, the God that they create revolves around their own desires, right? Everybody, there's millions and millions and millions of gods out there in their mind because what I like, what I desire, the sin I want to do, I just create God in my own image. That's what they do. God is love. Therefore, no matter what I do, I'm going to go to heaven because God loves everybody. But with that in view, that view in mind, can you imagine when you tell them that God is also just? You speak of God's justice. You say, well, you know, there is a place called hell for those who reject him. That in itself, you can hear, the, uh, if you're like me and you're kind of a boisterous kind of a guy, you will hear somebody's voice going louder and louder and getting a little more angry at you. Because you're implying that's me. Well, actually, I'm not. I'm just re repeating what Scripture says once again. See? People force themselves, folks, they force themselves to be ignorant because they don't want to know the consequences of their own actions. They purposely force themselves to be ignorant. Dave mentioned this this morning, but I'll mention it again. A good example is the theory of evolution. This was obviously created by man because they refused to believe that God himself created everything. God spoke the universe into existence in six literal days. 
They don't want to believe God. They don't want to believe in the Bible, and therefore they have to make up something else to put it in its place. Evolutionists will tell you if you catch them behind closed doors or if you listen to a creationist who says, well, I spoke to this person, they'll say, look, I, I really have a hard time believing what I just debated you on. But the bottom line is, I'm not going to believe in a designer. I'm not going to believe in a creator God. And therefore, I have to push this stuff. They'll push anything. It doesn't matter because I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to believe there's an almighty God. Think about how this years and years ago, there was this ridiculous notion of what is called Pithecanthropus erectus. Raise your hand if you remember that name. Ken. Nobody else remembers it. Yeah? Did anybody ever go to school? Did anybody? anybody, No? Okay. Pithecanthropus erectus, which evolutionists named Nebraska man. 1922, Henry Osborne found a tooth. Yes, everybody, he found one single tooth. And to make a long story short, he tried to force God out of creation and make a point for evolution saying, well, this tooth bore the characteristics of man and ape. And what did he do with this one single tooth? He created an entire species of man because they have to find a way to reject the standards of a one true God who said, wait a second, he created all of this. So history tells us that, believe it or not, many of the authorities gave Osborne their support. Many of the anti-God folks said, yeah, I believe it, right on the money. Well, based on that one single tooth, reconstructionists gave Nebraska man a head and a body. Yes, folks, you find one tooth and you can just create the whole body. Nebraska man was eventually depicted with his wife and his children. Yes, that's true, by the way. All in their natural setting. We all know that that one tooth ended up being what? A pig's tooth. A pig's tooth. But I'm going to create an entire species of man because I'm not going to believe in God. And they'll just do anything. People are ignorant, folks, because they choose to be. They choose to be. But with this comes another problem. They don't like God, the principles of God, but what about his son? Oops. (laughs) What about God's son? If they don't want to know God and are therefore ignorant of him, what are they going to think of the only one who represents him? And with that, what are they going to think of us, his followers? You're probably getting the picture of where I'm going with that. You see, it's really not a personal issue, folks. Jesus said right here in verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name. You see that? Jesus also said, They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. That's Matthew 24 9. It always goes back to Christ. 
Speaking to the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9, verse 16, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. I mentioned it earlier. It started with Christ. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If it started then, it's going to continue on forever until it ends. It's always because of Christ. Because if that's where you stand, they're going to hate you. Well, finishing up here in verse 22, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Now, when he says that those who reject him would not be guilty of sin, um, if he did not come to them, please don't miss the point here. He's not saying that everybody would not be sinners because that's not true. The fact is, whether Jesus came or not, they would be sinners, okay? What he's saying here is that if he did not come to them, them meaning the Jews, remember he came to his own people. They're the ones who rejected. That's who he's talking about, okay? If he did not come to them, the Jews, the sin of rejecting Christ would not be an issue, Okay? But he did come to them, didn't he? He did come to them. He did reveal God to them. And therefore, they are guilty of rejecting the Messiah and God who sent the Messiah. These Jews were going to try, as you know, and justify their hatred and their rejection of Jesus. But he says right here, they have no excuse. They have no excuse. They willfully rejected him to his face in light of full revelation. No matter how much outward zeal that these people had for God, if they rejected Christ, they rejected God who sent them, sent him. Folks, as we close this morning, let me just challenge you with something if you have never experienced rejection, if you have never experienced hatred from this world that you and I live in, it's possible that you're too much like them. I know that may hit somebody between the eyes, but that is reality. If they're not rejecting you, if they're not hating you, maybe you're too much like them. At minimum, maybe you're hiding your Christianity from others. It's a sad note if you're with people a lot, maybe somebody you work with or a neighbor or whatever, and they have no idea whatsoever that you're a believer in Christ. That's a sad notion. And if you're doing this in order to, to, to gain acceptance by the world, right? I don't want to be hated. I want to be loved. I want people to like me. If you're doing this to gain that kind of acceptance, you have made an, an extremely poor trade. Never lose sight of what James says. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. It's as simple as that. doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. If you verbally profess Christ and you are embraced by the world with open arms, you probably need to re-examine your commitment and your lifestyle. You may speak your words one Sunday morning, but if the world loves you, there's something bad going on. 
Because if you know Christ and you live for Christ, and therefore you stand up for Him, you stand up for truth found in Scripture, they will hate you. They will hate you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, for those who kind of know what's going on in our culture, in our world, in our own country, politicians, they know this kind of stuff has already begun. To go out there and just to be loving and sharing and caring about uh, an unborn child, the vileness that we hear is amazing. To speak the truth to a homosexual, instead of saying, oh, whatever makes you happy, in telling them the truth, all of a sudden we're hateful. Lord, people do not want to hear godly standards. People do not want to hear truth which is founded on your word. God, I'm not saying we need to run out into this world and make sure we're hated by everybody, but Lord, if we're honest, if we're faithful, they're going to because that's what your word says and that's what we already see happening. So Lord, remind us of what is going in in our world, Lord, that it's not against us. It's simply because we stand for you. But Lord, we will always stand by your side. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in the midst of suffering and or persecution or just verbal attacks. Would help us to know that these people need uh, to be prayed for because they're of this world and they've rejected Jesus Christ. But Lord, just help us to know that no matter what, we're standing by your side. Give us the Uh, the encouragement to do that as little by little, more and more, we are called vile names. But Lord, we know that we are on your side. Help us to stand by you in Jesus' name. Amen.